and welcome to Way Too Twog's Bagpipe and History Podcast, where I, your host Jeremy, explores the possible repertoire of 18th and early 19th century bagpipers. Come and let's enjoy some tunes. Hello, so this is uh, Jeremy Weijutwag here uh, in the wild again. Uh, so a little bit of a different episode. I unexpectedly found myself uh, committed to two history gigs in a row, uh, which means that my production time on the various podcast episodes that are nearly done kind of got dashed. So this is going to be a slightly different episode um, where I'm just going to kind of plop the zoom down and record a couple of the sets that I've been playing out here on Madeline Island where I've been talking about um, kind of the Scottish and Irish roots of the Northwest Company and playing Scottish, English, and Irish pipes and border pipes and that sort of thing. So uh, you'll hear a bunch of different tunes, a bunch of different pipes, and uh, all as the sets that are kind of in my head right now, poorly played from memory in some cases. But um, yeah, so that's that's what the episode's going to be, so that uh, I put something out and I have some thoughts about, I have some thoughts <laughs> that I've been thinking, uh, and I've got some of those recorded, and some of those I'll probably record in North Dakota, but anyway, that's what the episode's going to be. Thanks everybody for checking it out, and let's get into some tunes before I start nattering on too much.
So yeah, it was wild. Uh, on the way out here, I kind of knew that things weren't going to go <laughs> and that I wasn't going to be able to record and, and work on the episodes that I have nearly ready. And so I was listening to old episodes to maybe do a rerun this week. And it was really fascinating listening to it, the early season four stuff and how much I thought of the podcast as just a way to prepare to be better at doing this thing, like this uh, history bagpiping program. Uh, like, that was my goal. Like, okay, well, I'll do the podcast. This is the podcast that I wish existed when I was able to do these um, things for the Park Service several times a week. And now it's just for the podcast sake. And it's really lovely to not, like, to be able to talk about exactly the type of bagpipe music and uh, various histories that I want to and not really be too worried about um, making sure that it is immediately appealing to a mass audience. So y'all have, have given me an audience. Um, and I really appreciate it. So, uh, so keep, keep listening. I really appreciate you doing that. Uh, it's, yeah, it's interesting. I, I made some really cool stuff and got three, uh, I got a bunch of albums printed so I could have them for sale here thinking people would want to buy albums, but it turns out, man, like I forget that bagpipes are pretty niche, uh, and 18th century bagpipes exceptionally more niche than just bagpipes. So, uh, I, I brought 30 albums and I have sold one. Uh, I brought something like 40 digital download cool little 18th century printed things and sold none of those uh but i think i'm gonna get the museum to buy some so uh it won't be completely for naught and that's always sort of been a dream of mine anyway is to have my albums in museums so we'll see if i can't replicate that a little bit more anyway all that is to say uh, i really appreciate everybody listening and if you know anybody that you think might like this podcast um ask them if they listen and if they don't recommend an episode you like to them uh, anyway, so we'll listen to some more tunes, and uh, I think uh, I'll, if I am able to identify what the tunes are and kind of the order that they are in, I might uh, add them in the show notes. But uh, it's a little bit different episode of just like what it's like to hear Jeremy do a history piping gig, and it's fascinating to me the tunes that still live in my fingers. That like m at this point, really most of the tunes that just come into my head are 18th century tunes, some 19th century tunes, and then and then randomly a Gordon Duncan or a Mark Saul tune will still pop out. But um, I've kind of it has happened where most of my piping that comes out of my fingers is very much of the historic uh, genre. So feels pretty cool. Anyway, at the end, uh, I'll cut in probably when I'm back in North Dakota um, with some of the details of the history of this place in particular and why it's such a appropriate place to, to play bagpipes and talk about 18th century history and maybe the much longer history of this place as well. So anyway, miigwech, thank you all for listening to me play this music and chat at you from Moningwanakaning, Manolan Island here on Lake Superior. Let's listen to some more tunes.
Alright, so uh, as you can tell by the change in location uh, of my voice here uh, and the room sound, I'm back in North Dakota and yeah, I'm I'm not going to put a bunch of show notes down. Uh, I, it is Monday, well I guess it's Tuesday at 3.15am and in theory I have to get on the road on Wednesday uh, to go to the next gig. Uh, so yeah, if you have any questions about what tunes I'm playing and you don't recognize them, uh, get in touch, and I'm happy to kind of look at the timestamp and see if I can't help you figure it out. And I'm also realizing the tunes that I'm selecting here, there is a really big mix of stuff that I played years ago and stuff that's kind of recent from the podcast and, and tunes I'm working on. And uh, I also kind of like this format, so we're only going to post a very small fraction of what I did on Madeline Island, and we might keep another one of these kind of way too twelve in the wild episodes for... Uh, later periods when I am kind of pinched for uh, time. So uh, anyway, so Madeline Island or Munikwanakaning uh, is arguably the capital of uh, Ojibwe people um, and certainly was for a long time. The Ojibwe kind of history has them following a prophecy and kind of moving steadily further west and having the like center capital or village uh, at various places, and, and Madeline Island or Monangwanakaning is one of those places. Now the reason that I was there, right, was to talk about the fur trade. Uh, the Northwest Company, as I've mentioned many times before, is a Scottish-owned company who actually hired a Highland bagpiper to come and entertain them, So, and who came explicitly to Lake Superior. And probably not to Madeline Island. Uh, Madeline Island, or La Pointe, uh, as it was called then, or Monangwanakaning, um, was along the South Shore route. So it was generally serviced by some canoes, but mostly by the, the big sailboats that the Northwest Company operated, which meant it was pretty unlikely that George Mackay, who, uh, especially after his first uh, summer, was just traveling from the Red River to Grand Portage and back, like the piper wouldn't have made his way to Madeline Island, unless there's a bunch of other pipers I don't know about. Um, but the traders that operated it on Madeline Island certainly would have heard bagpipes when they went up to Grand Portage, which is where the big summer rendezvous or meeting was. Um, and more to the point, the owner or, or the guy who operated the actual trading post on Madeline Island for the Northwest Company uh, was born in County Antrim uh, in Northern Ireland, John Johnston. So uh, it was good to play Irish pipes out there too. So I was hoping I would, I would be able to locate um, some of the sources that I found or that I used to like learn all this stuff about Johnston, um, so I could just read it to you, and I couldn't after kind of scanning the two uh, easily accessible, I guess three <laughs> accessible things that I have from Johnston, uh, the details of it weren't in there. But one thing I do love is in this collection of sources that Johnston is included in, which is a bunch of like first-hand accounts that are based on the statistical accounts of Scotland, if you're familiar with those, um, basically Roderick Mackenzie, uh, who was a fur trader for the Northwest Company, saw the statistical account of Scotland and said, geesh, we should do that for Canada. Uh, and so sent out a kind of letter to all of the traders and clerks and people who are literate saying, hey, we're going to do this statistical account of Scotland except for Canada. And it never really got anywhere near as polished or organized and structured as the accounts for Scotland did. But uh, many years later, they were kind of compiled by one of Mackenzie's descendants into a lovely collection of primary sources and John Johnston contributed one and it's a pretty interesting one that kind of talks about Lake Superior and Lake Huron in general um, but some of the details of the more funny parts of his life as a fur trader are left out of it um, but anyway I found myself immediately identifying with Johnston after reading uh, his letter to Roderick uh, sent after he hadn't sent uh, the manuscript for a long time. So I thought, I'll, I'll read you Johnston's letter to, to Roderick at the beginning of this, um, you know, essay, kind of describing the places that he operated as a, as a fur trader. Sault Ste. Marie, 15 July, 1807. My dear sir, I know not how to apologize for my breach of promise with respect to my little manuscript. To say I had positively forgot it would not be the truth. The fact is, on reflecting upon the crude and undigested state in which it now stands, I dreaded its meeting the eye of a person whose correctness and superior knowledge of the subject I am sensible of. But when I reflect that the person has honored me with the name of friend, I no longer hesitate to submit to his inspection the beginning of a work which perhaps may never be finished, and which I fear will only be a proof of my vanity and weakness. 
All I can offer, in my own defense, is that it has never been revised, nor any attempt yet made to correct it, to bring it to a conclusion. Supply what is deficient and lop off exuberances will require ease of body and peace of mind which is far from being my present lot, and even admitting that to be the case, the requisite scientific knowledge and abilities are wanting in so evident a manner as to discourage self-conceit itself from the attempt. I beg leave to refer you to Dr. Uh, Mr. Duncan McGilvery for the little new stirring and remain with sincere regard, your dear sir, well, my dear sir, your very obedient servant, John Johnston. Isn't that just great? Like, I, uh, I get it. I, I totally know that vibe. Uh, <laughs> like, it's not gonna be great. This whole podcast is, it's not gonna be great. This is the best I can do. People probably shouldn't look at it, but here you are looking at it. Um, anyway, Johnston's a really interesting cat, and, uh, I really want to do a big deeper dive. He's, you know, the Northwest Company, I often say it's a Scottish-owned company, and, like, that's true in the sense that the big money behind it is Simon McTavish, uh, and, uh, eventually kind of his closest relatives who are all from kind of Fraser country around, uh, the South Shore Loch Ness, kind of between, well, around Falls of Four Years, if you're familiar with that area, so kind of the southwestern chunk of, of Loch Ness and down there, but, um, but there's lots of other people in the company too, including Isaac Todd, who's an Irishman, and Isaac Todd's uh, nephew, or nephew or son, I think Isaac Todd's son was just wandering around the streets of Montreal or Quebec, I can't remember which, and John Johnston, who had recently left County Antrim, uh, kind of bummed out that he wasn't going to have any job prospects, ran into his good old buddy, Mr. Todd, and Mr. Todd set him up with a fur trade job. Uh, and then Johnston goes on to live a pretty interesting life. When he's assigned to Madeline Island, or Moniwinaconning, uh, he is, like, I, this is what I'm, I'm bummed out by, because, like, the story is so funny, and it's it's a little too funny, which makes me think I may have altered it in the decades since I last read it. But what happens is he's he shows up on Madeline Island thinking he's going to be setting up a new trading post, and after he gets it set up, his, he notices his men are real squirrely and, like, acting funny, all these French Canadians that are working for this guy. And then a bunch of other, like, really gnarly French Canadians just show up like, he's thinking he's in the heart of Ojibwe country, just trading with Ojibwe people, and all these, like, wild, bearded French Canadians kind of come out of the forest and just start, uh, like, getting in, like, telling Johnston's voyageurs, like, what are you doing with this guy? Get rid of this guy. We don't need him. Let's get his stuff. Let's get rid of this guy. And eventually, they all loot him. They, like, steal all of his stuff and abandon him. And, um, and Johnston is left with, like, one lone dedicated voyager that didn't abandon him and basically nothing and so he has to go to the local like Ojibwe chief Wabujig and kind of beg for help and Wabujig is this total just incredibly important uh Ojibwe war chief who is a, like one of the main orchestrators of, uh, of one of the big pushes of Ojibwe um kind of the battle the the war front uh, into what is now Minnesota from Wisconsin, when the Ojibwe Dakota conflict kicked off uh, in the 1730s, 40s, and 50s, a lot of those early campaigns are kind of headed up by uh, efforts made by Wabujig. Uh, and Wabujig, or Whitefisher, is sort of worth a whole uh, episode in his own right, not for bagpiping, just for like how awesome uh, his story is. But, um, but yeah, he's an Ojibwe war chief of the Caribou Clan and uh, a really seemingly a pretty gifted tactician and good at getting people motivated to to follow him. And anyway, Johnson, in this winter of like being desperate and living in Wabajig's house, uh, fell in love with Wabajig's daughter and was like, hey, I want to marry this. I want to marry your daughter. And Wabajig was like, no, you fur traders are all the same. You either like take, you marry the women and then you abandon them or you like, you marry the woman and you're like, I'm an important high status clerk. And then you leave and they wind up with some like low life crappy clerk that I don't know, or a voyager, like, no, you can't marry my daughter. Besides, you're like an Irishman. You have all these estates and property and things in Ireland, so it's not happening. And essentially, uh, Johnson goes back to County Antrim and, like, sells everything he had inherited and all of his, like, settles all of his affairs there and comes back and eventually marries Wapajik's daughter. He does wind up returning to Ireland several times, um, 
And people are trying to get him, people tried to get him and his wife and his daughter to like settle in Ireland. Supposedly, after the War of 1812, he returned to Ireland with his wife and daughter, and people were trying to get, convince him to stay, including the Duke and Duchess of Northumberland trying to adopt their daughter uh, to get them to stick around. But uh, Johnson's wife, uh, Ozawa, Ozawa, Ozawa I think is what her name is. It's really confusing because all of the. Um, the spellings of it are butchered, but like Woman of the Blue Blade. Um, I think it's Ozawa Dashkatewekwe or something along those lines. But she wanted to go back home, so they went back home. But after, like, during the War of 1812, Johnston, like, went in hard for the British. Like, spent a lot of effort writing uh, letters and contributing military forces and uh, an effort to getting rid of the Americans during the War of 1812. And so, basically, that meant they couldn't live on Madeline Island anymore, because Madeline Island is uh, within the borders of uh, the new kind of United States. Uh, and now the United States is starting to kind of assert its claim over territory in the West that had largely been, you know, more or less ignored, because there was nobody out there that wasn't British, Indigenous, French-Canadian. Um, so it wasn't really uh, a thing that the United States cared about, other than somebody had negotiated for it on a map in France in 1780-whatever. Um, now it was starting to become a little bit more awkward to be such a, uh, <laughs> a de dedicated uh, supporter of the British and living in the United States. So they wound up kind of living in Sault Ste. Marie for most of their life. And their daughter, uh, Jane, who was almost adopted by the Duke and Duchess of Northumberland, or at least where the Duke and Duchess offered to adopt her, uh, winds up marrying uh, this guy, Henry Schoolcraft, who is maybe awesome, maybe a douchebag, probably a little bit of both. Uh, he takes credit for uh, discovering the headwaters of the Mississippi River uh, in the 1830s, I want to say. Um, was a very prolific writer, and thankfully, I don't know, thankfully or not, he sometimes even attributes his wife. He attributes a lot uh, to Jane of kind of like what he understands about Ojibwe culture. And so some of the largest collections we have of, and like the oldest uh, collections we have of Ojibwe women's writing are like the poems and the things that Jane Schoolcraft or Jane Johnston or Jane, I guess, Wabajig's granddaughter um, wrote about her experiences as an Ojibwe, an Irish uh, woman growing up in Sault Ste. Marie and on Lake Superior. So uh, anyway, really interesting cat uh, Johnston is and Jane and Schoolcraft, all these people. It's like I said, it's a, it's a really interesting story that shows up more than a little bit in my dissertation and uh, just in kind of general discussion about the fur trade. So also was really happy to play uh, Irish pipes out there on Madeline Island. So we'll cut from all this Highland piping um, and do some, some Irish piping. This is, I think, Lament of the Druid and then some other tunes and then Drimindu and some other tunes. And then we'll come back and I'll tell you a little bit more about Madeline Island and what it means to me.
See, if you can't tell, uh, the microphone was pointed uh, at me, and then also there was a flagpole right behind me. Uh, it was kind of interesting. I, it was very windy where I was piping, and I put my Zoom recorder inside my beaver hat and kind of used the beaver hat to protect, to, to block the recorder from the wind, and it really worked. Uh, there's some recordings that are super cool, actually, that sounded great from being recorded inside the beaver hat when I got to the side of the hat, but... All of those recordings were kind of ruined by um, people talking right next to the hat, and I didn't feel comfortable including their uh, kind of chatting in the episode. But I'd, I might explore using a beaver hat as a, a good recording device. Uh, anyway, we're going to go out on another big set of tunes. Um, I haven't been able to play a lot of Highland piping on the episodes lately just because of location and trying to figure out a space for that and a time when my one-year-old is uh, not sleeping or busy or upstairs. Like, my kid is either sleeping, where Highland Pipes are a bad idea to play, or he's in the room directly above me, in which case uh, it's not that the pipes are too loud up there, but occasionally, like, if he's running around playing, you can kind of hear it. So means there hasn't been a lot of Highland Piping uh, on the podcast lately, so I'm kind of happy to have this excuse to it. And I'm not sure that the recordings are going to come through, but by the end of the weekend, man, were my Highland Pipes just humming. They were sounding great. Um, and so to that end, I'm going to include some Peabrook even. So uh, this next set is uh, Peabrook that I wrote called uh, the Kichunigaming uh, Peabrook or the Grand Portage Peabrook. Um, I think I don't do the Tarlua doubling. And it's very much a like story-driven Peabrook that like rather than just a ground variation, like a, rather than just a, a core melody and then variations on it, it is... Like, every movement kind of has a story associated with it. Um, and I haven't played it in its entirety in years, and so this was me kind of playing it from melody, or from memory. And I got most of the parts correct, uh, and it's a little bit tricky, because the Kronlua singling is supposed to be um, just dire. Dire and dark and chaotic. It is, uh, it's a stand at Grand Portage, just the reservation, uh, and the location, like, where I worked for 14 years, and the Kronlua, like, Grand Portage, the Peabrook is a kind of historical narrative about the, the history of that place, and the Kronlua singling is kind of the darkest moment in, uh, Grand Portage history of, like, residential boarding schools and, uh, pretty bleak things, and so the Kronlua is bleak and doesn't really sound right, um, and it's also why, if you are a big fan of Peabrook, you might notice that, like, the Tarlua, um, the Tarlua singling, even. It's almost weird. It's I'm using more of a grip. It's like a, not grip, but burls. Uh, at first, it was going to be honestly more of a hiharan uh, variation, and then I just lent, leaned into the burls. But there's a combination of I'm trying to, I'm emulating kind of drum song, Ojibwe drum song, and also um, paddle cadence at the various uh, stages of this, this Peabrock, where it's like sounding like voyagers paddling canoes in unison and, uh, drums beating in unison and, uh, and that sort of thing. And then the Kringle doubling, it, it's a v absurdly autobiographical, but it's the first Peabrock I wrote, uh, about Grand Portage that was supposed to be about Alexander McKenzie. Um, but I wound up throwing out that whole tune, but I really liked that variation. And since it was written for Grand Portage and it is so kind of triumphant, um, that is why I included it as the Kronlua doubling. And that's uh, more or less to like... One of the, the cool things about Grand Portage National Monument is that it is a park that... Like, the National Park Service does not exist to coexist well with Native nations. Like, the National Park Service sites, uh, for most of their history, have been about you know, getting Native people off of land so that white people can enjoy it or non-Native people can enjoy it. Um, so there's lots of legacies of, like, well, when your generation is dead or gone, then your community can't come back or whatever, that, that sort of thing. And the elders and the, the community that sold and kind of ceded Grand Portage uh, to become a national monument, that part of it, included all kinds of things in there that were supposed to, like, guarantee jobs uh, and, and opportunities for band members and for indigenous people over just non-indigenous people, which is how the Park Service, you know, functioned for a long time. Um, and so that was pretty brilliant on their end. Uh, I think a lot of tribes did that and people just ignored it. 
Um, when I was there at Grand Portage, we were several years into the tenure of a superintendent who honored those things. And so it was, it was really cool. There was definitely, there was like joint management of Grand Portage National Monument between the band and the park where, uh, gosh, maybe half the employees were directly managed by the band, kind of paid for by the band. The, the National Park Service would get a big check from the government to manage the park, and they would divvy it up with the band so the band would manage how those things were done. Um, and since I've left, um, that's still going on, and they've also kind of switched over where a lot more of the permanent staff are indigenous as well, band members or um, people from the 1854 treaty when Grand Portage Reservation was established. So uh, anyway, it's a, so that triumphant Kundalua doubling is sort of speaking to that self-determination era. And partially it's a little bit of a pat, on, pat yourself on the back for the park service. Cause as I, when I wrote this tune, I was very aware of the um, <laughs> like kind of nonsensical approach that, um, like that bards make stories up. So everything is kind of dramatic and over the top. And so I was letting the pea brook be dramatic and over the top one way or the other. Uh, anyway, so that's what we're going to hear first is the Grand Portage pea brook. Uh, and then I jump in there with some, uh, fast tunes and patterns, leather breaches to kind of palate cleanse. And then, uh, I'll play another slow tune. And that is Carrie Baxter's three waves. This was the first time I had returned to the island since my friend and sort of patron Carrie Baxter passed away. I mentioned him back in season four, but the closest I've ever come uh, until setting up a Patreon, but like the closest I had come before then to like having a patron uh, was Carrie. And I met him on the island the first time I went out there to play this gig. And Carrie was sort of a legendary curmudgeon that uh, hated everyone, uh, but didn't hate me, didn't hate us that were out there on the island, and uh, put up a tremendous bar tab for us to kind of drink and eat the weekend away at the Bell Street Tavern when it still existed. And I was young and a poor <laughs> volunteer for the park service, uh, and it was it was uh, incredible gesture on his part and led to me getting quite drunk and playing a lot of bagpipes for a lot of also drunk people visiting Madeline Island. Uh, and it was a really good time. And then ever, every year since after that, when I returned to the island, Carrie would do the same thing. The Bell Street Tavern closed. He was no longer cooking there. Um, but when we showed up, he would say, all right, go to, go to the beach club and I'll have a tab for you there. And, uh, we'd hang out and chat. And one of my favorite memories in piping was when, uh, Carrie and his wife sat on the, like sat on the outside picnic table, uh, at the beach club. And I played a Peabrook for them and told them about like what the different stages of the Peabrook were demonstrating. And it was, I mean, we were all quite drunk, uh, on, on good whiskey, but it was still one of the first times I had like, I think done it like where you explain Peabrook and why that medium matters and how it's cool to people that were not pipers um and yeah it was cool um but yeah Carrie passed away uh in I think March of 2020 and I couldn't get back for the funeral COVID was just starting and everything was locking down but also my mom was in the ICU so I wasn't like I it wasn't it didn't feel like I could leave for that uh, but I wrote this tune for it um, and so it's on, uh, Oyster Wives Rant. So it was good to be back out on the island and play Carrie's tune a bunch and, uh, hang out with his wife a bit and give her the album. And, uh, anyway, so those are the tunes, um, we'll do, we'll, we'll finish out on, on Carrie Baxter's Three Waves. So it'll be Grand Portage, Peabrook, uh, and then kind of a fast tune with Patterns of the Breaches and then Carrie Baxter's Three Waves. Anyway, thanks everybody for listening to this weird episode. We'll probably have another one like it in the not too distant future. Uh, as this episode releases, I am probably not even going to post about it because I'm going to be at Fort William Historical Park uh, talking about um, my dissertation research and more discussion of kind of bagpipers in the Northwest Company. So I'm hoping to do another one of these type recording in the wild sessions out there as well. And also hoping to get my buddy Abe Zadek, Zatek, 
Zedek, Zedek, uh, my buddy Abe, anyway, uh, on the podcast, who is uh, his piper, who has spent a lot of time thinking about historic um, bagpiping in the fur trade, and also plays a German flute, which I am interested in. So, hopefully, uh, in the not too distant future, we'll hear some tunes and uh, some some chat from Abe as well. Anyway, if you want to support the podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash waytootwog. There's links in the show notes uh, if you want to buy physical copies of the albums. Like I said, there's a physical copy of Annex of Barley Meal available finally, so you can order one of those if you want, and hopefully Roly Poly will be out uh, by August anyway. Should be. Should be out by August. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, yeah, enjoy these last couple tunes, and we'll see you in a couple weeks. Thank you.